folks, welcome to the Hemang Pulse. The Hemang Pulse is the podcast dedicated specifically and exclusively to all things hematology. Coming to you from Blood Cancers Today, I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan, and I am a hematologist and a medical oncologist, did a lot of work in lymphoid malignancies. The Hemang Pulse is a podcast that is dedicated on clinical advances. We are going to discuss advances in variety of hematologic malignancies and some benign hematology topics. We are going to have some discussions about debates and controversies in the field of hematology, and we're going to discuss some phenomenal clinical trials with their authors. The Hemang Pulse is the podcast that focuses only on hematology and all things hematology. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate it and of course, tell your friends and colleagues about the show so they can really listen to these episodes. Today's podcast is with Dr. Ruben Messa, an amazing physician and researcher and a human being, a dear friend and a colleague. He's the executive director of the Cancer Center at the University of Texas in San Antonio, MD Anderson Cancer Center, and a world-renowned leader in the field of myeloproliferative neoplasms. And uh, he is going to talk to us about advances in MPNs with a focus on what struck him and what really intrigued him during the American Society of Hematology meeting in the beautiful city of New Orleans uh, in December 2022. Uh, you know, at some point back in the day, myeloproliferative neoplasms were these diseases that there's nothing you could do. And I will share with Ruben, um, uh, many years back, probably close to 20 years ago, when I was attending ASH and I listened to one of the plenary presentations when Dr. Tafari actually shared with the viewers and attendees the identification of the JAK mutation as a pathognomonic feature for myeloproliferative neoplasms. And then since then, the advances have been anything but, but outstanding. It's just amazing advances in the field. And uh, this is really a testament to the researchers, but also to the patients that get enrolled in these clinical trials, the perseverance, the resilience, and the desire of the patients to advance the field by going into these clinical trials that make significant transformation in their lives and the lives of others. Patients are the reason we do this, and patients are the reason we have been able to do this because their participation is really what made the field advance. So thank you for tuning into the Heman Pulse. Don't forget to let me know any ideas or opinions and also provide feedback. You can find me easily on Twitter by direct message me at Shadi Nabhan. So without further ado, Dr. Ruben Messa addressing all things myeloproliferative neoplasms from the American Society of Hematology meeting, December 2022. Well, look, I'm very excited today because I've got a dear friend, colleague, and, and a wonderful thought leader and a world-renowned oncologist, hematologist, and administrator in the field of cancer care. But we are going to focus on specifically myeloproliferative neoplasm. Well, first, we'll start with our usual introductions. Uh, so, Ruben, welcome to the Hemang Pulse. It's uh, it's our your first appearance on the Hemang Pulse, and I can tell you, if you play your cards right, we'll probably have you again. So, you know, let's see how this goes. How's that? Wonderful. Chari, well, it, 
lot of exciting things going on in HEME and the MPNs. Uh, I focus on MPNs throughout my career. I'm the executive director of the Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson. So with one hat, kind of oversee all aspects related to cancer and HEME, but also very sub-focused in HEME. So kind of look at things from both angles. As a clinical investigator, having been involved with uh, most of the trials done in MPNs over the last 20 years. Hey, Ruben, what got you into uh, hematology and MPN? Tell listeners a little bit about you. Uh, make it a little bit. Let, let's get to know you a little bit. Well, it's an interesting story. So I originally was going to be a nuclear engineer. Uh, and Chernobyl happened uh, while I was in undergrad. So I completed that degree, but got interested in biology, radiobiology, uh, ended up going to, to, to medical school, was really on track to do radiation oncology, but fell in love with hematology because of great mentorship uh, and the wonderful hematology program at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. So really, you know, they're really titans in the field, Maury Gertz and Bob Kyle, and worked really at the beginning of his career with my wonderful mentor, Ayelu Teferi, uh, where I got engaged with himself, Murray Silverstein, one of the original polycythemia vera study group uh, leaders, a uh, huge MPN practice there at Mayo Rochester, you know, and the rest was history. You know, it was a great intersection of science meeting an unmet clinical need, uh, a real need for patients, uh, phenomenal mentorship and opportunities, uh, and now have been involved with MPNs now for all, over 30 years. With trainees, you know, be open up to those experiences that, that are open to you. You know, people frequently will specialize in something they never heard of before they went to medical school. And uh, and that's good. It is amazing. We're all shaped by our mentors. And it's uh, really the field of MPN uh, is fascinating. I recall um, maybe our 20 years ago, I was at the American Society of Hematology meeting when Ayelu Tafari presented, I believe, the first abstract on the identification of the Jack uh, Jack mutation as a pathognomonic feature in, I believe, myelofibrosis at the time, or PG or PV. I don't remember, but I recall it was a plenary presentation. It, it really was the watershed moment. You know, as I think about my career, prior to 2005, when the Jack mutation was, was first discovered, you know, we fully didn't understand the biology of the disease. We still don't to a complete degree, but we know so much more now. And as we try to develop therapies, we largely were trying to beg, borrow, or steal drugs from other indications. From myeloma, we used anti-fibrosing drugs without much success. But after 2005, first, we had much more accurate sense of diagnosis. You know, there were all these patients that clinicians had been on the fence. Does this patient with erythrocytosis who smokes, is it PV? Is it secondary? There was a lot of hand-wringing. So one, we had a lot more diagnostic certainty. But second, and critically, there was now really targets that pharmaceutical companies could really focus on. With the first of those to, to really hit from Insight, which was a small biotech that was just an offshoot of DuPont at that point with a JAK inhibitor program. Uh, and the rest, as we say, is history. We now have you know, three FDA-approved JAK inhibitors, ruxolidinib, procridinib, fedradinib. We have mamelodinib likely uh, to come soon in the mix. We have uh, a range of combinations, you know, and we have more phase three clinical trials ongoing now in MPNs 
than we have ever had in the past. So all of that has only been possible because of that watershed discovery of the genetic underpinnings of the disease. It's amazing. And this is probably a great segue because this was presented at ASH first as a plenary. And then you said the watershed moment. And and I've invited you to the Hema and Pulse show to talk about uh, ASH 2022, um, about 17 years later from that watershed moment. And I've tasked you with a difficult task because usually there are hundreds of abstracts um, uh, in every disease. And uh, our goal is to select a few that we believe are a little bit closer to clinical use and maybe more practical for the clinicians who are seeing patients uh, in, in the office. So what, what struck you and what captured your attention? So you're right, you know, as we think about that evolution, even at ASH, you know, when I started my career, the entire oral session for MPNs was a single session with eight abstracts from basic science through clinical trials, you know, and now I think there's, you know, six to eight MPN sessions with, you know, with hundreds of posters and other things. Well, let's break it down a little bit first in terms, uh, as we think about MPNs, we largely separate them into kind of earlier disease, ET and PV, versus MF. Uh, a lot of the newest therapies are tested in MF because of the greatest unmet need. But in ET and PV, there's important things for folks to be uh, aware of. So first, in PV, there we have really now two FDA-approved therapies, and that's a change even from last year's ASH, where we now have the approval of both ropegylated interferon alpha-2b or Besremi, right? and we also have the approval that we've had since 2014 of ruxolitinib in PV. There's a great study that I was involved with led by Claire Harrison from the UK called the MAGIC study, where they were looking at ruxolitinib versus best alternative therapy for patients who were resistant or intolerant to hydroxyurea. This was a longer term, this was an investigator-initiated study longer-term data, other correlatives. And what they found, in addition to some of the benefits we had known before in terms of improvement in control of need for phlebotomy, a symptom response, they also were able to demonstrate for the first time both thrombosis-free survival and improvement in that very important outcome. You know, the number of events are not huge when patients are under treatment, so it takes a big study to really prove that piece as well as overall kind of event-free survival in terms of progression uh, and other pieces. Uh, additionally, there is a greater degree of reduction in the JAK2 allele burden in patients treated with ruxolitinib versus best alternative therapy. And it's a really good, good demonstration of, of benefit. You know, the second I would highlight is really more and more data as it relates to interferon. You know, for those that have not used interferon in PV or MPNs, you know, it's really time to consider doing so. You know, many that are in our field in, in heme malignancies uh, think about interferon from the past. You know, high-dose, short-acting interferon used for CML was a brutal therapy. You probably saw it during your career as well, Chad. It was very, very tough therapy before we had the TKIs and CML. And a lot of clinicians came away from that pretty scarred. You know, it's a toxic therapy. We shouldn't use it. But here, one, the long-acting interferons are much better tolerated. And two, 
they are given proportionally at a dramatically lower dose than those old doses we used to give for uh, CML, or even if you're as old as I am, that we used to give for renal cell cancer, or even myeloma. Before we had, you know, 30 myeloma drugs we used to give uh, interferon. There's a great study done uh, by the Danish group that's led by Dr. Hasselbach, where they looked at both quality of life and uh, symptom burden in patients treated with either hydroxyurea or pegylated interferon from a randomized trial. And they demonstrated that as you start with both in our current NCCN guidelines, it is dealer's choice. Physician can choose either one as frontline therapy for PV. But it's pretty clear the longer you're on therapy, the better off you're being on interferon. The long-term data from ropegylated interferon suggests uh, that was presented in last year's ASH, greater degree of molecular control. Uh, at this last year's EHA, it was uh, showed that there was better event-free survival in terms of progression, thrombosis, death. And then in this presentation, it shows really uh, improvement in quality of life and symptoms uh, clearly favors interferon over hydroxyurea. Not in the first three months, let's say, as people get adjusted to therapy, but really with a longer term follow-up. So those patients on a year, two years, three years, you know, it's a chronic disease. We're talking about chronic therapy in controlling the disease. The longer they're on, the, the better off they are being on that uh, that therapeutic approach. Uh, Ruben, one of the things that folks worry a lot about interferon, including me, is the psychological issues, the depression and things like that. Have you, uh, in these trials, when you're using the longer acting, lower dose, are these fewer, the depression and psychological side effects? I think compared to higher dose, short acting, without question. You know, it, it is a it is a concern that needs to be monitored. Uh, we do know, and we've interacted with psychiatrists this, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did a, a, an MPN uh, kind of a, a online uh, meeting, uh, controversies and debates. And we even had psychiatrists as part of the mix that have been helpful in co-managing these individuals, you know, and, you know, from the psychiatry end, you know, they feel that it's not a, a contraindication, but it's something that needs to be monitored and things of that nature you know so it's not it's not irrelevant but usually it is it's mild and, and most certainly it can be manageable so for the clinician out there it appears to me that the first line remains hydroxyurea when you decide to treat these patients today i would say that that younger patients those in childbearing age you know, long-acting interferon with with uh, ropegylated interferon, which is now FDA-approved, you know, is what I am starting people on. You know, the NCCN guidelines have both as equivalent, but I think the the aggregate data would suggest, you know, if you or I had PV, we would want to be on ropegylated interferon. Your your older patient, your patient that doesn't tolerate interferon, you know, hydroxyurea is, is a very respectable, you know, alternative. But all things being equal, I think ROPEG, better event-free survival, better molecular control, better control of symptoms and other events, kind of longer term. And then I look at RUX as really the second-line therapy. I look at Hydrea as kind of filling in the gaps, you know, or clearly, you know, if 
if there's an economic piece that always has to be factored in as well, you know, I'm mindful this podcast will be heard throughout the world and the economics of receiving these medications can be dramatically different in one country versus another. You know, in, in Scandinavia, interferon is the standard and in Scandinavia, France, other things, interferon is, is both supported and preferred. You know, in the U.S., it's very much insurance-based. Clearly, there's other parts of the world where the patients self-pay for these medications, and obviously, hydroxyurea is much less expensive. Okay, great. This is really exciting. What else? So then let's pivot to myelofibrosis. Myelofibrosis, a, a lot going on, and maybe I'll frame it in terms of a couple key updates in drugs that are available or soon to be available, and then second about combinations. And that as we look at heme malignancies, without question, most of the therapies, myeloma, where now you have these quartets, a lymphoma, CLL, combination therapy really is becoming the, the norm. Uh, but now in myelofibrosis, we have three approved drugs, ruxolidinib, tridradinib, pacridinib. Uh, in brief, ruxolidinib is still our standard approved spleen symptoms and survival. Fedradinib, clearly good data approved in the frontline setting can be used in the second line setting, particularly if the counts are, are good. Fedradinib now approved for individuals that have a low platelet count, under 50,000, whether frontline or second line, and certainly included in the guidelines for those with platelets of under 100, or certainly can be used as a subsequent one for those with a, a higher count. So first, as it relates to procridinib, we're learning more about procridinib. People think about it as uh, a drug for those with low platelets. It can be given at full dose for individuals with a platelet count of under 50,000, which, uh, which is a real plus, uh, without question. We've not had any drug that's been approved in that range. Rux and Fedratinib are both approved for those with a platelet count of greater than 50,000. They can be given a full dose, improvement in spleen and symptoms. Uh, this year's ASH, an abstract that I, I'm involved with, that Stephen O. led, uh, we have data showing that pacridinib also really has real anemia benefits. Uh, and part of it mechanistically is additional correlative studies have shown that in addition to being an inhibitor of JAK2 uh, and IRAC1, which is part of the reason that it's felt that it's been safe and effective for those with low platelets, is that it can be an inhibitor of ACVR1. Uh, ACVR1 can lead to a decrease in hepcidin. Hepcidin is, is an inflammatory marker. It's associated with anemia of chronic disease. And the thought is that by inhibiting that, it can help to improve anemia. And indeed, there's a strong abstract showing both significant improvement in anemia that can be seen with pacridinib, and certainly, as people are prescribing it now, that's another consideration. You know, the patient that has, you know, needs second or third line therapy and has significant anemia, uh, you know, and needs a prescription today, procritinib is a real consideration. You know, the individual that's got a plate account of, of 80,000 and has anemia, again, procritinib, a, a, real, a real consideration. It's a, uh, it, it's, it's a good drug. It's a helpful drug. Now, the, the other JAK inhibitor that is in the wings is mamalotinib. Uh, mamalotinib, there's going to be first updated data from the Momentum study. The Momentum study that uh, I helped lead along with Serge Verstavchek, we have an important update that Aaron Gerds is presenting with longer-term data. The Momentum study was 
Mamelodinib, which is an inhibitor of JAK1, JAK2, ACBR1, decreases hepcidin, was for individuals that had failed ruxolitinib, were anemic, had symptoms. And we presented earlier this year, now this, this uh, abstract updates that experience in terms of durable responses for improving symptoms versus a control arm of danazole, uh, improvement of splenomegaly, uh, and improvement in anemia and durability in each of those components. This is a drug that may well become uh, available and is under review by the FDA even by quarter two of 2023. You know, and I think we'll have a real impact on on what people are prescribing. Uh, Ruben, is, as, it, is, it, is it fair to say that the, and obviously um, I don't I have not kept up to date with the with the field in MPN. Is this the first drug that shows activity in ruxolitinib failures or? So all of them have to some degree. So fedradinib has second line benefit for those that have failed rux, but ruxolitinib and fedradinib both share the potential of causing anemia or thrombocytopenia. Got it. So they, they overlap to a, a significant degree, but can be very helpful in people that have failed and still have preserved counts. Pacridinib, very helpful in frontline or second line with low platelets. And as that last abstract I shared with you, also a bit in anemia. And then mamalodinib, particular claim to fame is really focused around anemia. You know, the ability to, they had uh, 13 to 33% of patients become transfusion independent on the momentum study while also improving spleen and symptoms. We previously have reported that the achievement of transfusion independence was associated with a survival advantage for patients uh, on mamalodinib. So a, a, a real plus in uh, it, in that regard. So I believe that likely will become unapproved therapy and then really give us a base of four JAK inhibitors, all with slightly different toxicity profiles, all with a slightly different profile of where they fit. So I think that will really enrich things. And one of the things with MPN, with myelofibrosis specifically, that clinicians worry about is the transformation to acute myeloid leukemia, where the treatment becomes a little bit more, more challenging. Um, are all of these uh, uh, reduced the risk of transformation? I believe in patients who are responding, the answer is yes. Okay. For those that we have data, it's probably mainly in ruxolidinum. You know, and it, as we have looked at overall survival, the survival has been increased significantly uh, as a group with with some that are that are really tre tremendous uh, outliers in terms of you know wonderful improvement in survival. I believe it likely decreases the rate. It probably does not arrest it. It, it likely mechanistically decreases the the microenvironment in the bone marrow that I think is conducive to the accumulation of additional somatic mutations. And I believe that the process of going from a chronic MPN to acute leukemia is, is probably a, a accumulation of additional genetic abnormalities, ASX01, IDH1 and 2, EZH1 and 2, you know, and others, uh, P53 mutations that take them down this more sinister path. Yeah. Uh, and that by improving the bone marrow microenvironment, it, it's better. So I saw yesterday in clinic 
a patient that I had put on the comfort study back at the uh, in 2009. Wow. Wow. Uh, <laughs> you know, who who is still on ruxolitinib. So this is you know almost 14 years later. Amazing. And his survival was anticipated to be under three years. Amazing. And now he's got some more anemia. We're thinking about, well, do we add another drug? But I mean, there's 14 years, you know, uh, and people just did not live this long. You, you know, the other perspective I have during my career is in the beginning of my career, I had to order a lot of sympathy cards. Yeah. You know, there were a lot of patients who passed, you know, they die after two years, three years, four years. And, and the rate at which people pass is dramatically less. You know, so I think all these things, even without causing, you know, the sort of overt remissions that we see with, let's say, with CML, where you have, you know, normal genetic markers, normal bone marrow histology, you know, we're not there yet. But you know but, what, that's okay. You mentioned the three S's and one of them was symptoms and the other is survival. I mean, if, survival, patients, yeah. if patients are living longer and with fewer symptoms, that is a huge win. Without question, you know, I think in the end, for all the endpoints one can look at, there's really only two that really matter. Do, do patients live longer? Do they live better? Or, or both? Everything else is a surrogate. Right. You, you, you only care about things like allele burden if you can prove that they lead to one or the other of the benefits. Absolutely. Same would be true in, in early stage CLL or follicular lymphoma, you know, or, or myeloma. You know, those are the only two endpoints that really matter. And everything else needs to be judged in the window of how predictive is it of one of those two things. Absolutely. I know you have hard stop. You're a very, very busy man. So anything else in the last three or four minutes that also captured your attention? I would say that the future are really combinations. So a couple highlights. One, further long-term data. There's several that are really at the top of the list. Combinations with palabresib. They probably have greater efficacy for spleen symptoms and marrow, maybe change of disease features, uh, combinations with class, combinations with a PI3 kinase inhibitor parsiclicid, uh, combinations with a, a, a HDM2 inhibitors. Uh, there's other combinations that are going to be presented that are preclinical at ASH. Uh, there's a combination with pegylated interferon and ruxolitinib in a randomized study being presented by my good friend, Jean-Jacques Kilajan, that shows a greater kind of initial benefit. So I do think we're probably going to evolve combinations either upfront for perhaps a subset of patients, you know, two drugs, potential more toxicity, more expense, but there's a group that that may be worthwhile. Uh, a second strategy, which are really add-ons, you know, do you add on a second drug after a, a period of time to... Uh, for those that have had a partial response or, you know, as a pure second line. But I think we will have many more combinations as either a combination from the get-go or as an add-on strategy after three or six months, you know, if metrics of success, spleen symptoms or other metrics are not met. This is really amazing. It's a fascinating, fascinating field. I mean, you know, at some point back in the day, I, I honestly recall, uh, uh, Ruben, when I was a resident, probably the only thing that was given, and it was controversial at the time, but I recall one of my attendings was telling me, all we could do, like give erythropoietin 
because for patients with MPN who have some anemia and splenomegaly and, and uh, people were talking about radiation to the spleen and a lot of other things that we just don't do anymore at all. Sure, or, or splenectomy. When I was a fellow at Mayo, I reviewed a series of 300 splenectomies in the past because that's all we had. you know. And the mortality was almost 10%. Patients would have thrombosis and bleeding. You know, we used... Uh, all sorts of drugs, the anti-helminth drug, suramin, you know, we used perfinidone. Uh, again, so much better to be guided by, by the science, you know. And again, we'll also learn for, still we have the unmet need and accelerated and blast phase. We learn more about therapies that have impacted AML. They have relevance in this group. There are ongoing trials with combination with the IDH2 inhibitor with jack inhibition for people that have that mutation. I saw a patient yesterday who again really falls in that category, 10% blast, IDH2 mutation, uh, has MF, you know, that will line up for, for that trial. So more and more coming on, more granularity uh, and uh, more options for patients with both MF and earlier disease, most certainly with ET and PV. Well, I think on behalf of a lot of clinicians and patients out there, I want to thank you for everything that you are doing um, and uh, keep up the amazing work, my friend. It's really such a pleasure to talk with you and learn from you about a disease that is really has become so fascinating thanks to your work and the work of uh, many others who dedicate their lives for MPN. Thank you so much, Ruben. Really.